Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Hey, welcome to Politico Tech. Today is Monday, January 8th. I'm Stephen Overly. Something you should be paying attention to this year are the multiple key court cases and legal tests that may influence tech regulation for years. And the action is everywhere, in state courts, being looked at by federal judges, and of course, at the Supreme Court, which is slated to hear two cases with major implications for online speech. SCOTUS is expected to hear oral arguments in one of those cases, a lawsuit aimed at content moderation laws in Texas and Florida, late next month. To break down what these cases mean for tech policy, I called up Alexandra Reeve Givens. She's a First Amendment scholar and the president and chief executive officer at the Center for Democracy and Technology, a D.C.-based nonprofit that advocates for digital rights and freedom of expression, and has filed legal briefs in a number of this year's big cases. So, on the show today, your primer on what to expect in the courts this year. Well, Alex, thank you for joining us on Politico Tech. Great to have you here. Happy to be here. Let's start with the Supreme Court. You know, the the docket this year has two major cases involving online speech. The first is this case, NetChoice v. Paxton, for those sort of following the language on it. But it's essentially a challenge to laws passed in Florida and Texas that would prohibit large social media platforms like YouTube and X from removing posts, you know, based on the opinions they express. What are you watching for in that case? Sure. So the net choice cases have the potential to be a really big deal for the future of the internet. And I think one of the first things to say is just to talk about the issues, the laws that are specifically at issue in case from Texas and Florida, which were hugely controversial. They came out of a sense that uh, social media platforms were moderating content in a way that was politically biased. But as a result, the laws state these very broad claims that platforms must moderate content with neutrality. And then in the case of Florida, that platforms would not be able to block the speech of political actors, for example, even if it violated their terms of service. So there are really interesting questions just about the normative values at stake in those laws and what they mean for platforms being able to moderate hate speech and harassment and other undesirable content that violates their terms. But the legal question involves an even bigger picture, which really is under the First Amendment, do the platforms have the right to make their own editorial decisions about the content that they carry on their services? So at bottom, the fundamental issue is, should the state be deciding through legislation what goes on these social media platforms? Or does the First Amendment mean that it's the platform's rights to make their own editorial choices and leave these questions more to the marketplace of ideas where, you know, ideally different companies take different approaches and users can vote with their feet about which platforms they go to based on the decisions that they make. And has CDT weighed in on that case when an amicus break for commented in a formal way? We have. So we filed um, amicus briefs in those cases, both in the courts below and then now at the Supreme Court as well. But what's fascinating is that we're in very mixed company from a really wide range of stakeholders. So if folks want to go and, and look at the docket, you'll see filings from the Goldwater Institute, you know, the Cato Institute, to the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, to even places like the Gifford Center and the Brady Center to prevent gun violence, which shows just how important these questions of online content moderation are to a really wide range of issues across the political spectrum and different subject matter areas as well. 
And is the through line there just sort of a defense of the First Amendment? Or what's bringing all of those sort of strange bedfellows together? Yeah, so, and, and I should say, they take slightly different tacks in their brief. So the common through line is that they're all interested in this, drawing slightly different lines about where this falls. The argument for CDT and many other groups from across the political spectrum is that content moderation decisions are editorial judgments that should be protected by the First Amendment. Uh, and the reason why that matters is that we need to be worried about a world where the government is deciding what content lives on a platform and what gets taken down. We want platforms to have freedom to respond to their users' input and the pressure that users can put on through the market to make their own judgments in those cases. And that's a really important element uh, that's at stake here. So that's what, you know, that's what we've argued in our brief. A large number of other amici have filed similar arguments as well. The question will be exactly how the court comes down and if they help clarify the doctrine here. And, you know, depending on the the outcome of that case, what sort of precedent could that set for other states, you know, dictating sort of content moderation practices? Right. So that's what's so interesting. So the Texas and Florida social media laws really matter because if they do go into effect, they would have a significant impact on the platform's ability to moderate hate speech and harassment and other types of undesirable content. But also, if those laws are allowed to stand, it really may be open season in terms of what other states start to legislate about what they do and don't want to see on social media sites. And so that's one of the things that we'll be watching is how the court writes this opinion in a way that hopefully sets a clear precedent and stops what could be a really broad proliferation of different laws across different states, infringing on an area that historically has been deeply protected by the First Amendment. Well, this other Supreme Court case that has a lot of similar themes, I think, or raises some similar questions is, you know, it's been brought by attorneys general in in Missouri and Louisiana, and it essentially accuses the Biden administration of coercing social media companies into removing content that the administration, you know, argued was misinformation, you know, some related to the election, some related to COVID-19. That's another case where I know CDT has filed a brief with the court. What's the argument you're making there? Yeah, so the Murthy v. Missouri case is another really important one for the future of content moderation. This has been an interesting case for First Amendment scholars, because for many of us, for the reasons we were just talking about, we get nervous when the government is pressuring social media companies to act in a particular way. That decision should be around kind of speech, should be about the marketplace of ideas and, and individual citizens and companies being able to post things in an appropriate way. At the same time, however, of course, there are legitimate moments for government actors to share information with the social media companies, particularly around issues of public health, of things like not only public health, but also elections or other areas where there really is a material interest in having a good flow of communication to stop the spread of illegal content, fraud and deception, spam, those types of topics. So for CDT and a number of other people, we are really trying to persuade the court to help add a clarity to what reasonable exchange of information between government actors and social media platforms look like. So it isn't under this cloud of confusion, right? So undue pressure by the government, coercion is of course inappropriate. Information sharing probably is appropriate. We need to have clarity about how to apply that multi-factor test uh, so that the government can act going forward and the social media companies know how to act as well. Where should that line fall? Because it it does seem to be quite a gray area. I'm wondering what clarity you're looking to the court to provide. 
So with multi-factor tests, it does always end up being a little bit gray. But some of the things that we think are important is that you have to draw the line between information sharing and coercion, which is there's other Supreme Court precedent on this as well about what amounts to the government coercing speech versus trying to be persuasive like any other person is trying to be persuasive. Another key thing that we're focused on is transparency around this too. This is a call that CDT and many other advocates in social media sphere have talked about for the long time, which is when the government is asking social media companies to moderate content in a particular way or flagging content, we need transparency in how the social media companies are receiving those requests, what they're doing with those requests and how they're responding to them. Have sunlight be a disinfectant. You know, it's a long held statement that we think is an important one here to again, add more clarity to these dynamics as well. My colleagues reported, and this was late last year, that the federal government had sort of stopped sending Meta, had stopped sending them information about foreign election interference, right? That communication they had had um, to sort of suppress misinformation that might be coming from bad foreign actors um, was no longer being shared. And I, I wonder, what does that tell us about the implications for this case? It tells you why it's important for the court to issue clear guidance, right? In no world is that a good policy outcome for law enforcement officials not to be able to share factual information about threats in the offline world with players who have enormous power and influence in the online world to actually address some of those harms. So there is a really important value to the social media companies being able to get intel from law enforcement agencies and others about potential threats that might be impacting their networks and the the, the fates of, of their users, um, not just on election interference, but also on fraud and scams and other types of issues as well. We'll be right back. You know, there are also a number of legal challenges to laws happening at the state level. In particular, you know, we've seen a number of laws crop up around children's online safety in places like California, Arkansas, Utah. What does that tell you about the legal landscape for the state of kind of children's online privacy protections? Yeah, it's a really important issue because, again, it shows just how fraught these questions are with respect to the First Amendment and online content moderation in particular. So with respect to the age-appropriate design code case and other cases around youth online safety, they tend to combine a number of different kind of levers for change. And some speak to the content moderation policies of platforms, what's surfaced on their platform and to who, which are typically editorial decisions that the First Amendment, we believe, protects. Other issues speak to children's online privacy, right? So controls about what they see, what the automated privacy settings are, or to the transparency obligations um, around kind of what uh, platforms policies are. Each of those levers are important, but some raise more constitutional and legal problems than others. So when you go from just thinking about privacy protections and how easy it is to target individual users, and instead the government starts getting involved on what kids can and can't see online, it just becomes much harder and much more ripe for challenge. So we're going to be watching those closely over the coming months to see exactly how they're decided. My hope is that courts can be thoughtful and reasonable here. We've seen some decisions where 
in raising concerns about the content moderation provisions, language is being used that makes it imply that you can't do anything to regulate social media companies at all. That, of course, is way too broad. We need privacy protections. You know, we need transparency obligations. I think the other piece that this shows, just if you pull back to a macro level, is just how many different places tech policy is being figured out right now. Right. We, we can't escape this conversation without talking about AI, because <laughs> you can't have any tech conversation nowadays without talking about AI. But also in the courts, you know, we've seen a number of AI-related cases pop up. You know, I'm thinking at the end of last year, in particular, you know, the New York Times sued OpenAI for copyright violations. It's not the first time those sort of accusations have been made of AI. I wonder how symbolic sort of that lawsuit is of some of the legal questions around AI right now and and how significant of kind of a legal backlash we might see as this technology gets more pervasive. Yeah, I think you're right to call it out. It's a really important case. And as you say, it's not the first one, right? We also have the banner litigation by Getty against Stability AI. And then, of course, famous authors like Sarah Silverman and others who have been pursuing their cases as well. And in some ways, I mean, you almost can hear echoes of the early internet where, you know, in the 90s, the fate of the internet was decided not by Congress at first. It was the court starting to step in, often with copyright infringement in mind. And it was only after some really confusing court cases that Congress came in and actually wrote Section 230, which we continue to fight about, you know, decades later, to try and do some cleanup. (laughs) Um, So one almost wonders in the AI debate, you know, who's going to move first? Congress is obviously doing their work. The Biden administration is is doing its work. Europe is is legislating, but the courts are getting their their piece of this debate as well. The copyright cases are, are really interesting, right? Because the question of training data, you know, all of this comes down to whether or not that's protected by fair use. One thing I'd be curious to get your opinion about, which is the Biden administration's AI executive order that came out at the end of last year and sort of tasks federal agencies with trying to answer some of these big picture questions around AI, including copyright questions, as we've been talking about. I wonder what role you see that executive order playing in in maybe addressing some of these legal questions or conversely itself sort of seeing legal challenges. Yeah. So the Copyright Office had already started a proceeding earlier last year on this issue, and they're continuing it now. Basically, they're going to be issuing kind of their guidance and their take on how to resolve some of these. You also see a number of other studies that I do think are going to be important just for shedding more light on these really complicated legal questions. Another one that CDT and others have been focused on is this question of open source model weights and what the liability framework for that should be, like what the regulatory framework and even just what companies' responsible approaches should be to open source. And that's going to be a report coming from NTIA within the Department of Commerce in the first quarter of this year as well. So the way I read the Biden executive order, they really used every authority that they could. Some of these complex legal questions, there's not much that they can do right now. They can't change the law, Mm -hmm. but they are shining a spotlight on them to try and have many different stakeholders say their piece, surface their arguments, and then try and shed light on the debate just to bring more clarity, which I do think is really important. Is there a legal question around AI that you have that's sort of unresolved that you think we might get some answers on this year? There are big questions about where liability falls in the value chain for AI. So if you think about the value chain for AI being, you know, the companies that develop it. So stereotypically, we can think about open AI or we can think about, you know, meta or, or, or others, the ones that deploy it out in the world. So this would be a company that is using that tool to power their customer service chatbot or something else. And then the end users that get kind of impacted by the tool. Who is responsible for what? 
is actually still a very complicated question, depending on the nature of the harm. There's a lot about that attribution of responsibility that's hugely important. It's important because that really is what ends up shaping responsible company behavior, right? It's if you face liability, you're much more likely to think about these risks. And so who do we want thinking about those risks? Who do we want to hold accountable? I think for most people, the answer is going to be, well, we want everybody in the stack to have kind of accountability for their piece of it. So there are trade-offs in this liability question and really a lot to think about, about kind of where we want those to sit and what responsible design practices from companies we want to incentivize. And I think we have a lot more thinking to do about that including as Congress tries to get ideas down on paper for legislation. Right. You know, I want to I want to just end by going back briefly to the Supreme Court. You know, I took a look at this end of year letter from Chief Justice John Roberts, where he wrote a lot about technology and sort of on the one hand, how, you know, courts and the legal system have been a bit slow to adapt to technology. I mean, he talked about quills and inkwells and then typewriters and, and sort of this slow evolution that's been made and how AI is really the, the next frontier of that, you know, that the courts will have to be responsive to. I wonder if you had any takeaways from that? I was glad to see him address it. And, you know, it's reflective of our times. One of the first set of headlines that came out around generative AI early in 2023 were lawyers who were being sanctioned because they'd written briefs and used generative AI to do their site check. And it literally cited cases that didn't exist. So to me, number one, it's emblematic of the fact that every sector across the economy has to think about how AI might be showing up in their work and the issues that they deal with. And I'm glad that the courts are no different. Two, you know, AI in the courts actually isn't new. We've had this big issue for at least a decade of some courts integrating AI into their bail and parole decisions. There have been big controversies about this in Florida uh, and in Illinois and other states where judges have used algorithmic recommendation systems to help analyze who is likely to recidivate, to recommit a crime, and use that to influence their decisions around bail or parole with huge inequalities in the assumptions they were making about people based on flawed designs of those AI systems. And so it's a good reminder that AI doesn't just mean generative AI. It means these algorithmic decision systems that have been integrated in the court system before. And those issues are long overdue for big time public scrutiny. And finally, you know, one of the biggest messages I have about AI is that it is hugely important that it not just be technologists talking about these issues and we not just be talking about what the AI companies are doing. A lot of the responsibility is going to come to the people that are deploying these systems or the people that are seeing how they are being used in a particular sector. So judges have to get smarter about this. If lawyers are going to be using it in practice or questions around AI are going to be coming up in their courtroom, you know, they don't get to say, oh, that's complicated and technical. We don't have to focus on it. No, they're going to have to grapple with it and get smart quickly. Well, Alex, fascinating conversation. Lots to look forward to this year, and we'll have to have you back to talk about it as this plays out. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. That's all for today's Politico Tech. For more tech news, subscribe to our newsletters, Digital Future Daily and Morning Tech. Music in today's episode comes from the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Our managing producer is Annie Reese, and our producer is Afra Abdullah. Our editors are Steve Heuser, Daniela Cheslow, and Louisa Savage. I'm Stephen Overly. I'll see you back here tomorrow, where we'll be at CES. Now I have to pack a bag.